Well, hello, hello, and welcome back. Yes, welcome back to the 33 Rides podcast. And in today's episode, we're talking to Alistair Humphreys. And I think the best way to get started is really to get started. So with almost no further ado, let's get started. But just one quick note. This conversation was actually recorded back in March of 2023. So for your listening sanity, you may have to mentally translate one or two references to the future tense into the present or perhaps even the past. Does that make sense? I hope so. Right then, let's go. So the 33 Rides podcast is all about adventure, bicycles, trains and sustainable travel. And my guest today is particularly well qualified, I think, to speak on most, if not all of these subjects. Now, he began his adventuring career at the age of nine when he completed the Yorkshire Three Peaks Challenge and since then has gone on to cycle around the world, row across the Atlantic Ocean, walk across the deserts of the Empty Quarter and many other things besides. He pioneered the concept of micro-adventures and he has written, well, 13 books according to his website, but I think possibly more than that now. He is, of course, Alistair Humphreys. Alistair, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the 33 Rides podcast and welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a, a long time since our paths crossed, so it'd be nice to have a chat. Yes, indeed, it has. Now, Al, you've travelled the world and the seven seas, but let's start closer to home and set the scene for our listeners so I'm speaking to you today from 33 Rides headquarters, which until we set off next week is my bedroom in Birmingham. And through the window, I can see uh, my neighbour's quince tree blazing in a sea of pink and daffodils nodding in the breeze and the honeysuckle, which has erupted in a burst of greenery. Every year it races against the rosebush with which it shares a climbing frame to start capturing the springtime light soonest. And I think the honeysuckle is winning the race this year. And look, I can see the neighbor's cat staring at the shed again. So that's me. And Al, can you tell me where are you today? And what, if anything, can you see from your window? <laughs> that's a very poetic uh, introduction and a very nice opening question. So I'm in my shed which is um, down at the bottom of my garden, just outside London. It's a small shed filled with books and uh, dirty coffee cups. And this is where I uh, do my work and write my books. And if I look out the window now, I can see a garden fence and a couple of trees with bird boxes up that I've put up optimistically and a bird feeder just out here, which is permanently being demolished by goldfinches. I seem to have a huge charm of goldfinches that rattle around here and have fights and keep me entertained so um yeah oh and like yeah daffodils are coming spring is definitely on its way some snowdrops still and uh yeah every year i think i cannot tolerate british winter any longer and then usually just about the start of april um it comes 
back to life and saves me for another year. That's what spring is for, isn't it? Well, it sounds like you have a little writer's paradise there in your garden shed. Um, now, Al, I expect you probably know all about the what three words system that allows you to pinpoint any spot on the planet using just three words. But my challenge for you today is to ask you this. Can you tell me who you are in just three words? Oof, gosh. Um, I am an adventurer, an author, and a procrastinator. Perfect. I love that answer. Uh, I checked on your website earlier and I saw that it takes you normally five words to describe who you are. <laughs> adventurer, blogger, author, speaker and filmmaker. So I wondered which of those was not going to make the cut if I asked you to trim it down to three. But I like the way you've slipped procrastinator into your list there. That's probably just a reflection on my book writing performance from this morning until we started to speak. And it's also, you've also now pointed out two things that I need to update on my uh, website. I've written 14 books now, so I need to amend that. And from what you said there, well, I'm, I don't really count myself a, a blogger anymore because I think they uh, have gone extinct with the dinosaurs. And um, I'm no longer a, a filmmaker either. I, uh, I, in COVID, I sold all of my camera gear. I figured I was trying to do too much in my life and I needed then to cut away some stuff, even if I really, really enjoyed it. So I've sold all my camera gear, sadly. Hmm. Ah, interesting. Uh, I, d I didn't know you'd uh, you'd managed to trim, cut back your your some of your many busy life activities. Now, Al, let's get warmed up with the thirty three rides quickfire questions round. Now, the rules are fairly simple. I'm going to ask you some quick questions, and I'm going to ask you to give me some quick answers. I'm sure you'll get the hang of it in almost no time at all. So, if you're sitting comfortably. Let's begin. Question number one. What is your favourite means of transport? Bicycle. What's the best way to travel? Solo, couple or group? Oh, well, seeing as this is a quick fire question, I'm not allowed to give large caveats to each one. I will choose single. Best way to spend a Sunday afternoon? Exhausted after a long run, lying on the sofa watching rugby international matches hot places or cold places hot he says from a cold and wet england best train ride ever oh i'll choose the sleeper train that goes from london up to the highlands of scotland because i really really love that one i'm envious it's on my list of things to do one day most lost you've ever been or perhaps you've never been lost Gosh, is this is this uh, literally or um, emotionally? You can interpret the question <laughs> however you like. I did once when I when I was cycling in China. Um, wake up one morning, unpack my tent. So this is the middle of Western China where it's completely empty and there are no features at all. Just to uh, justify what I'm about to say, but I woke up one morning, packed away my tent, came back out onto the road, started pedaling, and cycled for. At least 10 miles before I realised that things started to look a little bit familiar and I turned the wrong way that morning. <laughs> had to turn around and ride all the way back again, which I'm sure you realise is more possible than it sounds. 
Very easily done. You always need to make a note in your diary as to which side of the road you've turned off to camp. Otherwise, uh, the, the risk of repeating that error is uh, is always present. Um, place that you've never visited but would like to. Antarctica. Place that you have visited but wish you hadn't. Not including Birmingham, obviously. Um, I don't think I'd, I, I would not answer that question. I think I'm glad that I've been to all the places that I've been. And actually, in fairness to Birmingham, I was there at the weekend doing a talk at the NEC. And just a couple of miles away from the NEC, I found some really lovely countryside to go for a run and a little river to have a swim in. Train, plane or automobile? Train. I love trains. Talent that you wish you had? Oh, uh, drawing. I'd love to be good at drawing. What are you most afraid of? Oh, um, well, the deep answer would be wasting my potential and opportunities. And a practical answer would be um, vertical heights. Is there a piece of kit that you've taken with you on every expedition you've ever done? Probably... A thermarest, I would think. That always makes the cut everywhere. Other brands are available. Thermarest and a pair of socks. Yeah. How how many... Uh, No, actually, no. No, I didn't take any socks when I rode the Atlantic. Actually, I didn't take a thermarest either, so that's a rubbish answer. Yeah, I'll stick to a thermarest and you you can add the socks. How many extra miles would you cycle to avoid cycling half a mile on a really nasty road? Uh, I've always wished that I was the sort of person who would take the lovely scenic detours, but I'm very much the just hammer down a motorway with no lights on and hope for the best sort of guy, which isn't good. Uh, I've I've been that guy sometimes, um, and uh, I feel like... You know, cats have nine lives. I don't know how many lives uh, cyclists have before that uh, motorway with no lights on technique catches up with us. Um, Right, one more in this quickfire round. What do you miss most about home when you go away on an adventure? Simple things like toast and cereal. Plus, of course, family is the official answer. But I did say toast and cereal first. Good. Al, you're famous for going away, but I want to talk to you a bit about coming back. Uh, You've gone away on expeditions and adventures, long and short, from weekend micro-adventures to four-year round-the-world cycle rides. But all of these adventures have one thing in common, I think. They all ended with returning home. The Greeks called it Nostos, I think, didn't they? In fact, the best-known Greek adventure story of all, the Odyssey, is all about this return. Odysseus's struggle to to come home to his former life. Uh, some people say homecoming can be the hardest part, returning to the sedentary life of paying the gas bill and supermarkets and lawn mowers and the same view out of your window every morning. Um, and perhaps most of all, the profusion of things which litter our everyday lives, but which I suppose, unless you're one of those Victorian adventurers in the grand style uh, with an army of porters to carry your copper bathtub, 
these are things which are mostly absent from expedition life. So tell me, Al, what was it like for you to come home after years in the saddle or many weeks rowing in the empty ocean? Um, gosh, this is a very good question that people don't often talk about and I think is really under thought about in expedition life. Um, particularly given that I think quite a lot of people who go on expeditions are in some way leaving because they're trying to run away from something or they're dissatisfied with something or trying to run away from themselves, which is an impossibility that we attempt. So I, so given those, um, extra parameters I do think that coming home has a is a big thing for um, expeditions particularly probably because expeditions are generally quite miserable and therefore a large amount of the time when you're away on an expedition you're dreaming of being back home on your sofa with a cup of tea and making all sorts of think claims like when I get home I'll never complain again I'll always keep the kitchen tidy I'll eat lots of vegetables I'm going to be such a good person when I get home so certainly when I was cycling around the world, I spent a lot of time, too much time really, yearning for home. And of course, then getting home is fantastic. You see everyone you care about and you drink some cups of tea and you have a shower and you sleep in a comfy bed and you wear clothes that don't stink and it's lovely. And you go to the pub and your friends will say, wow, tell us about your adventure. And you start telling about your adventure. And after about five minutes, they say, oh, that's enough of that. Um, what was EastEnders like last night? And then life just goes on and you somehow come home, somehow the very same person, but also a very changed and different person. And you have to fit back into that. And when I got home from cycling around the world from four years away, I loved being home for probably a couple of months. And then I just started to feel really empty and aimless. And I couldn't help but compare my normal daily life at home to the what already I was polishing into a glamorous lifestyle of being out on an expedition. Although we both know that the realities of expeditions are full of routine and mundane, boring stuff. But once you're back home, you start to polish it up. And I started then suffering by comparing normal life with the glamour and glory and ease of um, being out on the road. And also the glorious, simple selfishness of being on an expedition. You can do what you want, when you want, where you want. You talk to who you want. And if you don't like people, you just cycle out of that country and never go back there ever again. And it's so easy. Um, and so I found all those things hard about being home. And to be honest, I still find being home really hard. I find it really boring and frustrating and mundane and tedious um whilst at the same time realizing that it is also far more deeper and more important and meaningful than being away on a silly little adventure so i've often thought that going away on a, to cycle around the world was the best thing i've done in terms of having an interesting life but i'm not sure it is the route to having a contented or happy life so the chinese have that curse may you live in interesting times um so, yeah, I find coming home hard. And the remedy for that is usually to just go away again. <laughs> but then uh, th then things cycle around in perpetuity. What about you? How did you find coming home after your long bike ride? Yeah, well, it was um, not easy. I mean, I, I heard your answer just now and some of that uh, rang true with me as well. 
Um, yeah, I think I found it uh, difficult to adjust, difficult to cope maybe with, um, how would I describe it? I suppose the life at home is in some ways more complicated or to put it another way life on a on, a, on an expedition or on, a, on an adventure can be very simple because you distill everything down to basically one goal um you're trying to achieve one usually fairly simple and as i think you said often quite boring thing but it's something <laughs> that you can you can dedicate all your mental and physical faculties to which might just be you know pointing your bike hopefully in the right direction each morning <laughs> and cycling as far as you can or, or you know, whether it's cycling or, or walking or running or rowing or whatever it might be and, and keeping going until you reach your goal and you probably know what your goal is. It, there's a finishing line usually, isn't there, on a, an expedition or on, on an adventure. And life in the, in the real world, I suppose, isn't quite as easy as that because there isn't a finishing line. Well, I suppose there's a finishing line eventually for all of us, but it's a finishing line we're trying not to reach rather than the finishing line in our expeditions that by and large we are trying to reach. Although maybe that I don't know how you've how you experienced it. Maybe there were times when you wanted to push that finishing line just a little bit further away so that you didn't have to contemplate what comes after. Um so yes, I, I think I I struggled uh, with coming back. I, in the end, didn't do what you've done, I suppose, um, which is when the when the going gets tough at home, uh, go away and go around <laughs> the cycle again. Um, although it was, uh, I, I don't know if it was tempting the right word. Certainly, there were times when I thought you know that would be easier at least. Um, it's something that I think I didn't prepare myself well for. I thought that the hard part was cycling uh, or going somewhere. Um, and that's not necessarily the case. In some ways, that's the easy part. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, I literally yeah. never gave a moment's thought to life after the trip, probably even till I'd actually got home. So I'm glad you asked that question because I do actually find increasingly people email me about having similar experiences after their trip. It seems to be something that's fairly universal in people who've done long trips, but mm. I don't think that many people consider it beforehand. So it's good to good to discuss it. Well, Al, I think we're, we're more or less the same age. Uh, I remember visiting you at your home in Reading uh, back in 2006 it was the 8th of September in fact it was a Friday evening I looked it up in my diary um, uh, it says in my diary for that day 125 kilometers a perfect day filled with sunshine tailwinds and blackberries what more could a cyclist want <laughs> well that was that was what uh, 17 years ago uh, when, when I was on my own way home from a two-year bike expedition um, and I think at that point you had perhaps already been back home for a little while. But can you tell me what has changed most since that time in terms of your view of adventure? Life circumstances permitting, would you jump back on your bike tomorrow and pedal around the world again, perhaps in the other direction this time? <laughs> yeah, I seem to remember, Ed, when you uh, visited 
my house when you came to Reading that I pretty much force fed you just an obscene amount of food like you were some sort of foie gras goose because so many people had been so kind when I was cycling around the world and giving me so much food that finally I had a chance to repay four years of free meals by just sort of force feeding you to an uncomfortable degree. <laughs> Best Best evening of eating in my life, Al. Uh, you can never, you can never overfeed a cyclist, can yeah, you? That is the maxim to go by. Yes, yeah. Um, I mean, it's always lovely when a family invites you in to stay, but and and I'm always deeply grateful for whatever anyone kindly gives me. But there have been times when I've sat down for a meal in in a host house and been presented with something that's just astonishingly tiny for the amount of calories that you've eaten that day. But, uh, anyway, your question though was much. Uh, deeper than that it was about would I what has changed in my perception of adventure would I go again so for many years after cycling around the world I was very strongly of the opinion that I was really glad I'd cycled around the world once but I had no desire to do it twice there was definitely no need for a victory lap um, even though going the opposite way would be fascinating and seeing other people seeing people again would be fascinating and there are a few reasons for that um there are so many new places that I would like to go that I didn't don't I still actually don't have any real desire to go back to places that I've been to before. I'm much more interested in new places. Um, I'd got properly sick of bicycling, so I was much more interested in traveling by different means. Um, and also, it was really hard. I was four years. So it was really hard, and a large amount of that time I was lonely. And, um, and yeah, it just didn't really appeal to want to do it again. I was glad I'd done it, but I didn't really feel drawn to it again. In the last few years, probably just since COVID-ish, I have been more and more thinking, oh, I would quite like to go on another bike ride, but definitely wouldn't be four years. And I would definitely eat more coffee and cake than um, banana sandwiches and instant noodles these days. Um, but I think my real, the real thing for me has been the the sort of driving rules of adventure that set me going on things. So when I cycle around the world, I was very much motivated by trying to have the toughest time possible to go to really tough places and to push myself really hard and to measure myself against the benchmark of all the great expedition books that I'd read and and I was and I did sort of see it as a competitive sport of it. Well, if someone's done this difficult thing that I want to see if I can do harder than that so it's really about measuring myself and pushing myself but adventure for me has changed perhaps softened uh, over time um, no doubt as I have also softened and maybe got a bit more of a brain but for me now I'm far more interested in adventure being about curiosity and learning new things and um, and just yeah, the curiosity and the learning are much more integral to any sort of journey I'd want to do now. So I'd be much more interested to go on a long bicycle journey than a long bicycle expedition. Interesting distinction. Now, something else that has changed enormously in the time since then is, of course, technology. Smartphones and Google Street View and so on weren't around when you began your bike ride around the world, for example. Um, how do you think technologies like that have changed the world of adventuring? And how do you personally 
feel about them. When you go away, are your bags stuffed full of gadgets and cables and chargers? Um, yeah, it's amazing. This this makes us feel properly old, the, the, these sorts of distinctions. I remember getting in a taxi in Japan, in Tokyo, and he had a, um, uh, what are they called, TomTom sat-nav type thing that would tell him where to go on the screen. And I'd never seen that before and absolutely blew my mind that he could navigate around Tokyo by using this thing in his car. Um, and I remember um, in America, that was the first time I'd ever seen a website where you could type in, go from here to here and it would show you that on a wet on a map that that was possible and tell you how many miles it was so yeah my trip was pretty much paper based so i navigated through the length of africa with two paper maps and one for northern africa one for southern africa same actually with all the continents i just had a big paper map of a continent and off i went and by doing that i'm sure i missed out so many beautiful little byways and things and all sorts of fabulous things that the internet could have said to me if you just go five miles that way you'll see an amazing old shrine or something but the flip side of that is I think I'm willing to take what I had in terms of just the simplicity of it of following my nose and asking people and seeing what turned up and and not being so wedded to the planning when you've just got one piece of paper to get you from Cairo to the um, equator you kind of just go for it and then just um, get on with enjoying that day. So similarly, photos. I um, I took about 3,000 photographs in four years of cycling around the world, which is probably quite a lot. I was I quite liked photos, probably more than normal cycle tourists, but 3,000 in four years. I've now been on weekend micro-adventures when I've taken 3,000 photographs. So um, yeah, the, it's quite incredible the difference that I had no laptop, I had no phone. And now... I suppose some of that has washed off now in that my daily life is so full of technology all the time and like all of ours. So one thing I really like about going away on adventures large or small is having the minimum amount of technology. So, for example, a few years ago, I uh, spent a month walking through Spain uh, playing my violin and busking and I, I I really didn't want to take a phone at all but I kind of felt I should do to keep in touch but I set myself really strict rules there so I deleted all the apps from my phone no social media no email um, and I would I had the phone then just for navigation because it's much easier than a paper map and for keeping in touch with anyone if I really needed to but I banned myself from anything else in order to ha- try to have as analog offline experience as I possibly could and when I do the sort of micro adventure things that I do which I then share a lot of online because that's kind of my job I, I go out into the world and I take photos and I do all the digital stuff but I don't share it while I'm out there I just take the pictures and then I come home and tell the stories retrospectively and I think all of these are attempts to simplify my life and to make the most of that wonderful part of adventures which is the simplicity of just living in the moment right now out on the trip and I can worry about Instagram when I get back home. Mm, well you've uh, you've brought up the subject of social media and obviously that is something that has transformed the world of adventure and and particularly how we communicate well how you communicate about adventure. Um, I noticed that yesterday was your 15th anniversary of being on Twitter. So happy Twitter birthday, Al. Um, 
What's your relationship with social media like these days? Do, do you get mired in controversies or do you fly above the fray? So I, I love social media. Social media has made my career possible, um, or certainly made it vastly easier than beforehand. Um, and I, I, through it, I've learned loads, make contacts, make friends. I have digital friends from social media who I've never met in real life. So there's wonderful stuff. But I'm really strict on it in that, by and large, I only transmit on social media and I realize this is very hypocritical because I spend a lot of time trying to encourage people to follow the stuff I do and uh, get involved in what I do but personally I just put stuff out there and then turn off my phone and try and just live my life so I don't have anything about my real life on the internet uh, or social media it's just vaguely work-related adventurous stuff and I definitely try not to get involved in Twitter arguments although Increasingly, as I as my priorities move away from adventuring, which isn't really a very argumentative world, towards um, environmental and nature uh, passions, um, this is when I start to notice that people do get like to have very long Twitter arguments. So, essentially, I like to have discussions on Twitter, but I have a rule that I won't argue with anyone who doesn't have a real picture of themselves or and and give themselves a real actual human name. So, I'm not going to just spend my time arguing with bots because that would be very tedious um and to be honest i think just arguing on the internet is not really a good way to get anything solved people i think it just pushes people's opinions even further apart by and large but overall my relationship with social media has been really strong but i have to rein it in quite tightly because it is quite addictive and it's easy to procrastinate from writing a book by just checking bbc sport for the 25th time this morning You've been counting, have you? <laughs> no, I don't need to count. It's <laughs> pathetic. Now, Al, I, I'm fascinated by the names of things, and I think you have a knack for giving things names. Could you tell us uh, what each of these things are and where the name came from? So to start with, <laughs> shouting from my shed. Shouting from my shed. So... Um, I, I have an email newsletter, which I think, it, by the way, is a vital part of uh, online storytelling and probably far more useful than spending time building up a Facebook person, um, audience. Anyway, yeah, shout. So I have an email newsletter um, and I think I used and that's yes, that's the name of it. And it's called that because I'm in my shed when I write it. And I was thinking, shit, 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 words that begin with shit. That are actually positive towards it. So uh, shouting from my shed, it's me telling the world what I find interesting from my shed. The, yeah, the original garden shed. One of the one of the challenges, well, actually, which I think most people now know about, in, in since um, working from home came about from the pandemic. But one of the challenges of being a writer or whatever you might label me, basically, work my life, also being my job, is trying to separate my life from my job, and I pretty much have a tendency if I if I was left alone I would just work on my stuff 24 hours a day seven days a week so to try and separate and get some sort of sanity when I got I got an advance for my micro adventures book and I spanked it all not on a Ferrari but on a garden shed to just try and separate my real life from my working shed life and it's been a great investment I really like my shed 
Well, I, it looks amazing. I can I can see it on the, on your video call now, and you've got a fantastic library uh, behind you, and uh, all sorts of things hanging from the walls and the ceilings. Yeah, it's great. My wall, the walls are covered in OS maps, and then that got too full, so I've had to put maps on the ceiling. Uh, if I have to put my Zoom screen carefully positioned, because if I twist it this way, look, you'll see a massive poster of myself. The the uh, the narcissism of being the adventurer. I have a, 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 a huge post of myself, which makes me feel like an idiot. Oh, I think I've just disconnected my internet. Yeah, sorry. I just pulled out my uh, internet cable while showing you the large post of myself in my shed. So I, um, part of my job over the years has been uh, working as like an ambassador for different brands and um, which basically all revolves about showing off about myself and hope trying to not believe my own nonsense too much. But yeah, I ended a uh, clothing company made a large <laughs> uh, advert for raincoat with my uh, ugly mug on. And so I have a giant post of myself in the corner of my room, which I find amusing. But if people don't know me, it might just make them think I'm a total plonker. <laughs> We've been talking about your shed. So that was shouting from my shed. How about there are other rivers? Ooh, so that's There Are Other Rivers is the title of my book about walking across India. And I need to get a quote. Hang on. I can explain it because it's a quote from John Steinbeck, who says, For I have discovered that there are other rivers, and this my boys will not know for a long time, nor can they be told. A great many never come to know that there are other rivers. And... Uh, I thought that'd be a good title for my book because it was about following a river through India. And I liked the idea that you have to go out and find the rivers for yourself. How about My Midsummer Morning? <laughs> my Midsummer Morning is the title of my book about playing the violin through Spain, which was inspired by Laurie Lee's uh, fabulous travel book called As I Walked Out One Midsummer Morning and that his fantastic book inspired me to go and I thought My Midsummer Morning was a good title because it's also a book about my full-on adventuring midlife crisis, some of the things we've touched on in this uh, podcast. So I thought the Midsummer Morning was quite a nice uh, uh, play on words there. And one more thing that you've given a name to, micro-adventure. <laughs> micro adventures so i spent lots of years doing big adventures and then i realized that i wanted to try to um share the fantasticness of going on adventures and make it more accessible to more people um in more places more of the time and to do that i started doing deliberately really really small adventures which at their heart still had the essence of big stuff and I wanted to try and say that it doesn't matter how small your adventure is, even a teeny, 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 tiny adventure is still an adventure if it feels like that to you. So I chose the word micro because that just means really small. So hence micro adventure. But to be honest, I probably gave it about 10 seconds of thought whilst I was writing a blog post about my about this the first time I did it. Um, I had no idea that I would then spend the next 13 years talking about micro-adventures. But I, yeah, I think the word holds up. I think it does It does its job okay. Yeah, uh, an inspired 10 seconds then <laughs> yeah. it spawned 13 years of work. Now, Al, I would like to move on to a segment called True News or Fake <laughs> News. Uh, 
there has been a lot of talk recently about artificial intelligence and in particular the rise of AI powered chatbots. Although it says here on my screen, owl powered chatbots, because I think this is a this is a um, a problem you may find yourself facing more and more in the future. At least in aerial font, if you write your name, there's no way of telling whether you're talking about Al or AI. But that's a problem I'm sure you'll find a solution to if indeed it needs one. Long live um, the serif. Yes, yes, indeed. It's all about typography, isn't it? So one of the AI-powered chatbots, which has become prominent in recent, well, very recently, really, it's just in the last few weeks or months, isn't it? Um, it's called Chat. GPT. Now, I asked ChatGPT to tell me 10 interesting facts about Alistair Humphreys. <laughs> right. And this is what he or she or they. it told me. They. Now, for each fact, Al, I would like you to tell me whether it's true news or fake news. Because I don't know whether they're true or not. Maybe they're all true. Maybe none of them are. But let's find out. Okay. So, AI fact number one about Alistair Humphreys. Alistair once spent a week living on an, on an uninhabited Scottish island with no food, no water and no shelter as part of a survival challenge. Fake news. Right. Zero out of one so far. Alistair completed a 500-mile journey across the Arabian Peninsula on a camel. <laughs> Fake news. <laughs> the thing is, they're all quite plausible, yeah. aren't they? They're all exactly the sort of thing you might have done. Well, let's see. Okay, so zero out of two so far. Number three, Alistair was once arrested in Belarus for illegally crossing the border into the country while on a cycling journey. That sounds like a fine adventure, but fake news. I've never been either arrested or to Belarus. Zero out of three. Alistair is a trained paramedic and has worked as an ambulance driver in London. Fake news. All right, let's try number five. Alistair is a keen gardener and keeps an allotment in his hometown of London. Total nonsense. I'm decades too young to be a fake, a keen gardener. All right, let's try number six. Now, this one has to be true. This one has to be true. Alistair once spent a week living in a treehouse in the middle of a busy roundabout in Bristol as part of an urban adventure experiment. Uh, I would love to spend a week in a tree to stop them being chopped down, but no, that's not true. I'm starting to sense a pattern here. Now, this one sounds plausible as well. Alistair once spent a month living in a cave in Spain, <laughs> surviving on a diet of wild plants and snails as part of a wilderness survival challenge. Wow. Those, the, the plants in caves. Um, no, not true. Hmm. Okay, there's three more. I'm hoping we're going to get one hit after a string of misses, but I'm starting to have less and less confidence in this chat GPT artificial intelligence. But let's try it. He... Uh, Alistair once spent a week living on a deserted island in the South Pacific, subsisting on a diet of coconuts and fish that he caught himself. Fake news. Two to go. Alistair once spent a week living in the woods near his home in England, surviving on a diet of wild food and rainwater as part of an experiment in self-reliance. 
there's a grain of truth to that, but it's uh, like most adventurers, it is exaggerated. All right. Well, we'll give that one half a mark. So that's half a mark out of nine so far. There's one to go. Now, this one sounds plausible, but I don't know whether it's true or not. Alistair is an ambassador for several charities, including the youth development charity Rally International and the environmental charity Friends of the Earth. (laughs) So the first half is true, but the charities are incorrect. Admirable, though, I'm sure they are. Ah, so are we going to give it half a mark there? Let's uh, let's award it half a mark, because um, that means it gets one out of ten if we add those two halves okay. together. I thought that it might have scored five out of ten at least on those, because they all seem perfectly plausible to me, but um, you have debunked them in almost every the case. The good thing is, though, they do. it does now save me having to go and do some of those quite exhausting and tiring things, because I could just make up some adventures from home now. That I, I like this idea. The AI adventurer. AI the adventurer. Al the adventurer. AI the adventurer. I'm, I'm working on this, but I think there's a there's something here that means I can write more books without having to actually leave my shed and get wet and cold. I think it may even mean that you can write more books without having to write <laughs> yes. the books because the AI will do it for That's you. Yes. Um, <laughs> you can say to Jack, chat GPT, could you please write a book about my adventure crossing the Arabian Peninsula on a camel and uh, sit back and watch the the prose flow? Well, I have to say that as a writer, I am now using that website almost daily with to as a companion with my writing so i really i use it a lot but this is a good cautionary tale to uh, be careful how you use it now we touched or ai touched uh, a moment ago uh, on the question of the environment and i know this is something that's important to you now the 33 rides project is partly a fun challenge but it also has a serious purpose behind it, which is our aim to help to showcase and promote the use of low carbon travel in Europe. Now, Al, you've seen the world on all manner of expeditions. How has this come to shape your view of the planet on which we all live and the environment on which we all depend? Well, to be honest, for the majority of my adventures, I didn't really pay nature or the environment very much notice at all I, mean, I very much enjoyed being out in it cycling through lovely places or walking through lovely places but I really didn't give any thought to how it was disappearing or how it was perhaps different to a few generations earlier and I didn't really give any thought either to the carbon aspect of my adventures it just so happened that I preferred human-powered adventuring bicycles and boats and boots rather than engines so it was only alarmingly and ashamedly and embarrassingly recently really that I started to pay much attention to any of this at all but I think that over the past decade it's impossible to not now be aware of the catastrophic state of our climate and our of nature and our role in causing that and also to be very clear that if anything's going to change, we each need to change our individual actions and we each need to work hard towards some system change at all. And the simple stark choice is whether we choose to do that or we choose to just ignore it and carry on with our lives. And I did my best to ignore it for a while because it's quite fun um, just pratting around. But I got to a point where I just thought I cannot morally 
carry on burying my head in the sand now and something needs to change. And so I've started to care a lot more about it and change the direction of some, well, some aspects of my life and some aspects of my work towards that. Um, there was the UN report came out yesterday, which essentially uh, the guy said, um, I've forgotten his name, Gutierrez said that we need to, everyone needs to do everything everywhere all at once in the next, by the end of this decade, or the planet is completely transformed for millennia to come, which I think gives us a fantastic responsibility, but also quite an exciting opportunity to do something with our lives in the next five, 10 years that will genuinely impact the planet for thousands of years to come. And I can't think of a single time in history, perhaps beyond, say, something in World War II that has such an impact. So it's just a simple choice now. Everybody knows that is the case and everyone has a simple choice to either do it or to not do it. And what does that mean in reality, in practical terms for you and your life, your work, your job, your adventures? Um, so it's meant that I, so I, I write books, but for the, mo for the last 20 years, I've made the vast majority of my income by speaking, giving talks. And I've loved that because I've been flying off to all sorts of cool places in the world, uh, getting paid to go to cool places and do talks. And I've quit flying now. Uh, so that's had a massive impact on my work. Um, I love traveling to different places in the world and that's involved flying a lot. So I, I don't do that now. So I don't fly for travel and fun and for adventures. And I certainly wouldn't fly for anything that I was then going to be doing as a public body of work, i.e. which might encourage other people to do the same. Um, so it's, yeah, trains and ferries or bikes or a car for me, but that that's it. Um, on a personal level, I've uh, gone from being a full-blooded carnivore who um, sneered at wimpy vegans to being a full-on uh, tree-hugging chickpea lover. Um, and then just the standard things like putting up solar panels, changing my uh, electricity and all those things, which I thought would be very tedious, but was incredibly easy. Uh, joining the Green Party and generally just trying to start ranting um, about this sort of stuff, even if it annoys people. Oh, and I really like planting trees. There's a lot to rant about, isn't there? And a lot of trees to be yeah. planted. Now, Al, um, I could, uh, I've got about another 10 billion questions for you, I think. Uh, I could happily uh, keep chatting all day, but I know you've got books to write and I suppose I've got bags to pack as well. Uh, so we, we must, uh, we probably should start to think about wrapping up. But before we do, here on the 33 Rides podcast, we're always looking for a scoop. So go on, Al, tell us, what are you working on at the moment? Have you new adventures? Well, you've already told us you have a new book in the pipeline. Uh, is there anything you can tell us about what the book is going to be yeah, about? Yeah, absolutely. And it does link to what we've just been talking about, which is that um, how can we still have adventures and live adventurously, but without wrecking the places that we purport to love? So I committed to spending a whole year just on the single Ordnance Survey map that I live on. So one map measuring 20 kilometres by 20 kilometres. And I challenged myself to just go out and explore locally and see what I could find to see if I could uh, build my uh, curiosity and pay attention and noticing and learning about what I would find and through that get my 
wanderlust kicks um and it was fascinating so each week i'd go out and explore a one kilometer grid square there are 400 on the map i did one grid square each week for a year 52 grid squares which means that far from seeing everything on my map i realized how little i've seen i've seen it would take me eight years to explore the map in the thorough way that i've been doing um, and i'm writing about that now trying to encourage other people to get the ordnance survey map that they live on to exp and to explore locally and by doing so to find adventure close to home and also to just become much more aware of how we use our land and the terrible impact that our crazy land use has on the environment um, and uh, yeah that's what I'm writing about now so at the moment it's a full-on ranting moan of a book which I have to somehow try to uh, make more uh, friendly and encouraging and positive so that that's what I'm working on at the moment but um, yeah it's been really interesting to realize just how much I never knew was right here on my doorstep I've spent years like you cycling across continents and there are places five miles from my front door that I've never been to in my life that struck me as madness and it was a good redefining of what adventure and exploration meant to me at this time in life mm. now you're you're good at naming things has this project and this book got a name yet? So I've slightly, so far, I've stolen a name. Um, there's a lovely little short running film uh, called Of Fells and Hills, which is about this American ultra running guy who comes to the Lake District, little old Lake District in England, and he runs around there with some local guys. And he really loves their how connected they are with these the small Lake District hills, small to his eyes. Um, and he's fascinated that they really just love this one local area. And in that, he says, uh, it seems to him that a single mountain range is enough exploration for one lifetime if you explore it deeply enough. So I've stolen that idea, which I think is lovely. And I'm currently calling it a single map. But again, I put in about 10 seconds of effort on that title. So I've got until it's published to change it but at the moment it's called a single map with the subtitle of is a single map enough exploration for a lifetime well al you've got to be careful with these uh, 10 second ideas uh, the last one you had gave you 13 years of work i think you said um so this uh, sing a single map concept could keep you busy for some time especially if as you say you can only do an eighth of a map in a year that should see you through for uh, well, not quite to your retirement, but uh, for, for a few years at least. Al, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and so great to catch up. I know we haven't really been in touch properly for, for many years, but um, it, uh, it winds the years back uh, having this chance to, uh, to chat with you uh, today. Uh, one thing before we go, uh, as a thank you to you and in return for your generosity with sharing your time and your stories, uh, we would like to make a small donation to an environmental charity of your choice. Do you have a particular favourite? And if so, can you tell us what it is and why? Oof. Gosh, well, I like quite a, I like quite a lot of the obvious ones, but I'll plump for a maybe a less famous one to give it a plug, which I enjoy. It's called Trees for Cities. And I really enjoy joining their community tree planting days in the winter months when they plant trees in areas of cities that aren't really very nice but could really do with trees for all the reasons that they're important so yeah trees for cities i think do fantastic work 
Excellent. I shall look them up and uh, we shall make a, a modest donation um, to Trees for Cities uh, in return for for your kindness in uh, giving up your your lunch break. Oh, it's been a pleasure. It's so uh, nice today. to. W- w- the good thing of you having a distinctive name was that it was fantastic when I when it popped up in the in in my email inbox. Like, wow, this is Ed Canoco. Wow, there's a there's a blast in the past. It's been really nice to reconnect again, and uh, and I'm jealous. You're heading off on a fantastic adventure. Yes, well, this is um, having an an interesting name is both a a blessing and a curse. Uh, nobody can spell it. Nobody can pronounce it. But at least sometimes people recognize it um and yes we are off heading off next week it's eight and a half days to go i think uh on a 33 rides challenge as we're calling it so we've got 90 days to visit at least 33 countries around europe and we have set ourselves the parameters of having to take at least one train ride and at least one bike ride in each country and needless to say no flying allowed so our feet will be firmly anchored to the ground or the pedals or occasionally to a boat as we make our way across the waters but Al thanks so much once again for coming on our podcast and I wish you tailwinds for your next book and your next adventures to come. Thank you Ed it's been lovely to chat to you again. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. You can find Alistair on his website at alistairhumphreys.com where you can also sign up to his email newsletter, which I thoroughly recommend you do. He's also on Twitter at al underscore Humphreys. And don't forget to check out Trees for Cities too at treesforcities.org. I'm Edward Ginocchio, and you can find me on Twitter at 33rides or on my website at 33rides.com. Before we go, as always, a big thanks to my friends and colleagues at Sticky Technology for giving me the time to work on the 33rides project, and of course also to Catherine and the team at Brompton Bicycles for making the two-wheeled part of the 33 Rides project possible. And thank you, of course, to you, our listeners. The show would be nothing without you. Do share your comments and questions, if you have any, on our Twitter, at 33Rides, and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of the 33 Rides podcast. (music) 